Hello, and welcome to another episode of Assassinations Podcast. We're going to conclude our season on the theme of royal assassinations by looking at the life and death of a man christened as Albert Victor Nicholas Louis Francis, Prince of Battenberg, but better known to history as Lord Louis Mountbatten. At the end of this episode, I have a fascinating interview with Andrew Loney, who has written a really excellent biography of Mountbatten and his wife Edwina. Definitely stay tuned for that interview later in the show. Lord Mountbatten was killed by the Irish Republican Army on the 27th of August 1979, blown up by a bomb hidden on a boat as he set out for a day of fishing and crabbing along the Atlantic coast of Ireland. Mountbatten had a summer home there, where he and guests would spend every August. Three other people were killed in the blast, including Mountbatten's teenaged grandson and a local boy who helped on the boat. These killings took place at the height of the period in Irish history that has come to be known as the Troubles, a time of ruthless, deadly, no-holds-barred political and sectarian conflict that sometimes pitted neighbour against neighbour. Generally Catholic-Republican militants fought for an end to British rule in Northern Ireland, while Protestant loyalist groups fiercely opposed any talk of a united island. Meanwhile, the British army and intelligence agencies and the local police force engaged in what was effectively a prolonged low-level counterinsurgency operation that left nothing off the table. Northern Ireland in the 1970s was a place where all sides used violence and dirty tricks in an effort to achieve political ends in a deeply divided land. In the midst of this turmoil, the assassination of Lord Mountbatten was a massive news story in Britain, Ireland, and globally. After all, Mountbatten was a member of the British royal family, the uncle of the Queen's husband, Prince Philip, and the mentor of Charles, then Prince of Wales. In fact, it was Mountbatten who had engineered the introduction of his nephew, Philip, then a young and dashing Royal Navy officer, to Princess Elizabeth way back in 1939. Philip and Elizabeth were cousins, by the way. The slaying of Mountbatten in 1979 was the most high-profile assassination successfully carried out by the IRA, and yet the operation took many by surprise. At this late stage in his life, Mountbatten, who had served for many years as a senior officer in the Royal Navy, had no official role in public life. He was a 79-year-old man. He was at his holiday home where he had gone for many years. He was about to spend a day with his family, puttering about on a little fishing boat, cruising along the picturesque coast of Ireland, hauling in lobster traps and hoping to catch a few tuna. Many asked, what value was there for the IRA to blow up an elderly man and his family, including children? It would surely be a public relations disaster. Moreover, Mountbatten's country house was located in the Republic of Ireland, not British-controlled Northern Ireland. 
Therefore, the attack was bound to be regarded as a highly provocative international incident and a major headache for the Irish government. Many people in Dublin held sympathies for the IRA, but the assassination of Mountbatten on Irish soil would only make it harder for the Irish to resist British calls for cross-border coordination to target the IRA. So why would the Republicans choose to kick the hornet's nest? The former head of the IRA's intelligence directorate, Kieran Conway, revealed in a 2019 interview that the Republican group had discussed killing Lord Mountbatten in the mid-1970s. After all, Mountbatten was a relatively easy target. He had only very minimal, if any, security protection during his summer stays in Ireland. He moved about the quiet coastal areas of County Sligo freely and openly during his annual month-long sojourn. According to Conway, the IRA leadership had decided against targeting him. Mountbatten was just not considered to be a priority target. And the risks, operational and political, of assassinating him were simply not worth the reward. So, what changed in the summer of 1979? What reason could the IRA leadership have had to change their position and opt to kill Mountbatten? Or did they make that decision? Could it be that this was a rogue operation, something that the Provo leadership had to fess up to just to avoid the appearance that they were not in control of their own operatives? Anyway, the political blowback from the assassination was swift, severe, and wholly predictable. Of course, British condemnation came quickly, but even many of those in Ireland and internationally who were sympathetic to the Republican cause came out in opposition to the IRA's slaying of the elderly Mountbatten. Irish Prime Minister Jack Lynch condemned the killing, as did many other politicians across the spectrum in the Republic of Ireland. US President Jimmy Carter and Pope John Paul II spoke out against the act of violence and offered condolences to the royal family. Many Americans had served with Mountbatten during the Second World War, when he was one of the highest-ranking Allied commanders in the Pacific Theatre of Operations. There was widespread revulsion in the USA that a decorated World War II veteran and three other innocent people on the boat, including two children, had been killed in cold blood. Financial support for the IRA from Catholics of Irish ancestry in America, especially in New York and Boston areas, a network that accounted for much of the Irish Republican group's funding, plummeted in the aftermath of Mountbatten's death. Again, this fallout had been foreseen by the IRA leadership, who had seemingly rejected Mountbatten as a target for assassination years before. So why on earth would the IRA take such a drastic step to blow up an old man, bringing international condemnation and the likelihood of serious recriminations? Was there anything else going on that might have made Mountbatten a target worthy of taking such an unusual risk, either by the IRA leadership, or by rogue operatives, or by anyone else? Well, there was rather more to this case than meets the eye. 
for Mountbatten was involved in some very unsavoury activities. In fact, he had a secret life that might have put a target on his back, quite apart from his royal status. Welcome to Assassinations Podcast, where we delve into some of history's most notorious political killings and explore the mysteries and conspiracies that surround them. Time and again, assassins have wielded the blade, the poison vial, the bullet and the bomb to shape the course of history. I'm your host, Neil Cooper, and in this podcast, I'm going to investigate the lives and deaths of some of history's most colourful characters. In 1977, Lord Louis Mountbatten appeared on a British TV show called This Is Your Life. To those unfamiliar, this was a popular programme where a host, wielding a big red book, surprised his guest and told the story of their life with the aid of celebrity anecdotes and testimonies from old friends. This was new ground for the royal family. The Queen made scripted, televised addresses to the nation and Commonwealth every Christmas, but generally speaking, the rule was that the royals should be seen but only very rarely, and under certain circumstances, heard. So, it was quite a sensation when Mountbatten became the very first member of the family to appear as a guest on a popular entertainment show. Mountbatten and his nephew, Prince Philip, with a clique of like-minded senior courtiers, had for many years sought to modernise the way that the royal family engaged with the mass media. In 1961, Philip became the first royal to give a face-to-face television interview. Later that decade, Philip also supported bringing cameras into the palace to provide the public with a behind-the-scenes look at the rather ordinary aspects of the Windsors' daily life. Summer barbecues, eating breakfast, watching television, as well as some of the grander set pieces of the royal calendar. The documentary, produced by Lord Mountbatten's son-in-law, was simply titled The Royal Family and it was hugely popular in Britain and around the world. The Queen reportedly disliked the series and allegedly had it banned from rebroadcast in the UK after a rerun during her Silver Jubilee year in 1977. Nonetheless, in years to come, Philip would encourage his children to engage with the mass media proactively. Philip, raised and guided by Mountbatten since childhood, thought that the hidebound and highly discreet House of Windsor had to open up, even if ever so slightly. Their aim was to humanise, one might say, Britain's most elite and secretive family, though there were many traditionalists within the royal court who thought that this risked dispelling the mystique of royalty. After all, if they're just like us, then why are the royals placed in such a lofty and privileged position? 
Better, said the old guard, to maintain a respectful distance between the crown and the people. But the 1960s and 70s felt very much like a new era, one where mass media, youth culture and anti-establishment sentiments were challenging, indeed completely dismissing, the ways of the older generations. No longer could Britain's royals and aristocrats expect deferential forelock tugging from the peasants. It was now necessary, thought Prince Philip and Lord Mountbatten and others, including the Labour government of Harold Wilson, to make the House of Windsor something it had never really sought to be before, something rather vulgar. They tried to make the royal family popular. As part of this modernisation effort, Mountbatten is alleged to have brought into the bosom of the palace a very well-known radio DJ and television presenter named Jimmy Savile. A larger-than-life figure known for his eccentric mannerisms and outlandish clothing, jewellery and hairstyle, Savile was an extremely odd fixture within the royal firmament from the 1970s onwards. Now, I should say, there is some dispute as to the relationship between Mountbatten and Savile, and some question as to how Savile came to play such a surprisingly large role in the royal household. Some palace insiders have described Savile as a sort of modern-day court jester, who imposed himself upon a rather bemused but indulgent royal family. They claim that Savile cynically used his work as a prominent charity fundraiser in order to worm his way into the good graces of the House of Windsor. But Savile's biographer, Dan Davies, has claimed that Savile was deliberately brought into the royal household under the patronage of Lord Mountbatten, who Savile referred to as the Governor. By whatever means it was achieved, it is beyond question that for many years from the 1970s until his death in 2011, Jimmy Savile was a regular visitor, indeed a fixture, at the palace. He became something of a special consultant, one might say, for the House of Windsor, with his opinions sought on all manner of things over the years, from how the royals might appeal to youth culture, to even marital advice for Prince Charles and Lady Di. Diana reportedly strongly disliked Savile and was appalled at the suggestion that he, an exceedingly strange man and a lifelong bachelor, might offer her advice on her disintegrating marriage to Charles. As I said, the relationship of Savile with the royal family was an odd pairing, or so it appeared on the surface. Savile was from a poor working-class background in the north of England, he had been a coal miner during the Second World War, before starting a career as a professional wrestler and then a disc jockey, eventually becoming a major TV star in the 70s and 80s, famous for his yodeling and cheesy catchphrases. I remember him on TV when I was a kid, and I always thought he was a creep. Turns out, I was right. Well, we'll get to a fuller story of the potential connection between Mountbatten and Savile later. For now, let's go back, way back, to a very different era, a time when class distinctions in Britain were clear-cut and not to be breached. 
Born in the year 1900 to the minor German royal house of Battenberg, the young Louis was just one of the many European princelings related to Queen Victoria, the long-reigning British monarch. Louis's grandmother was Victoria's daughter, who had married the ruler of the German state of Hesse. This meant he was related to numerous other European royal houses, including, eventually, the ruling dynasties of Denmark, Sweden, Greece, Russia, and Britain. Though German, his father had settled in Britain, where he became a Royal Navy officer. Though often called Louis, the boy was affectionately known to his family, and later in life to his friends, by the nickname Dickie. He grew up as an English aristocrat and junior member of the extended British royal family. Privileged, certainly, but not terribly wealthy. The best asset that the Battenberg family had was their bloodline. That connection to Queen Victoria made them highly eligible, and his sisters were all married off to continental princes. With the First World War looming and relations with Germany deteriorating, the Battenbergs anglicised their name to Mount Batten. Just as the British royal family had changed its dynastic title from the very Teutonic House of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha to the more acceptably English House of Windsor, named after the great medieval castle outside London. Little Dickie followed his father into the Royal Navy, where he would spend a long and highly decorated career. He also played a semi-official role as a sidekick to Edward, the Prince of Wales. This was the man who in 1938 very briefly became King Edward VIII, but who was made to abdicate due to his desire to marry the American divorcee Wallace Simpson. Well, back in Edward's bachelor days, he was, as we might say in modern parlance, something of a player. In recently uncovered correspondence from the 1920s, Edward wrote, and I quote, I've appointed Dickie Mountbatten my procurer of partners, and only take on a young woman that he has vetted. Right. Well, when not engaged in procuring young women, Mountbatten found time to focus on his career in the Navy. By the outbreak of the Second World War in 1939, he had been made a captain in command of a destroyer flotilla. He saw action off the coast of France and Norway early in the war, but his ship was torpedoed and sunk by the Germans in May of 1941 during fighting off the coast of Crete in the eastern Mediterranean. Captain Mountbatten was then put in command of the aircraft carrier HMS Illustrious, which was undergoing repairs in the United States. This was just before the USA had formally entered the war, though President Franklin Roosevelt was already siding with the British Empire against Germany while seriously provoking the Japanese. During his time in the United States, Mountbatten travelled to the US naval base at Pearl Harbor, Hawaii. He was shocked at the lack of preparedness he witnessed there, commenting that the base was basically a sitting duck ripe for a surprise attack by the Japanese. His concerns were borne out just a few weeks later, when aircraft from the Imperial Japanese Navy attacked US ships docked in Pearl Harbor, 
causing a good deal of damage and providing President Roosevelt with the justification he needed to fully enter the war. Mountbatten returned to active duty in October 1941. He was given important roles in war planning in the European Theatre of Operations before being sent in 1943 to the British territory of Ceylon in the Indian Ocean to serve as the Supreme Allied Commander of the Southeast Asia Command, with the rank of Admiral. While there, he allegedly had as one of his aides a young Scottish naval officer named Willie McRae. We encountered Mr. McRae during a season of this show a couple of years ago. As some of you might recall, McRae was found dead in his car in the Highlands of Scotland in 1985, amid rumours that he was in possession of some highly sensitive documents that subsequently went missing. While the connection between Mountbatten and McRae has been very widely reported, biographer Andrew Loney told me that he found no evidence to support any sort of connection between the two men. Anyway, as Supreme Allied Commander in the region during World War II, Mountbatten oversaw the British recapture of Burma and Singapore from the retreating Japanese. Returning to Britain in 1946, he was rewarded with an earldom and made a Knight of the Garter, Britain's highest order of chivalry. The following year, he was sent by the British government back east, this time in a civilian role, as the Viceroy of India, the official representative of the monarch in Britain's vast colonial possession in South Asia. Mountbatten was the last person to hold this post, for the colonial era was coming to an end and the former British Raj would be split into two new independent countries in 1947, India and Pakistan. Much bloodshed accompanied the partition of the subcontinent into these new states, though it is doubtful how much influence Mountbatten personally wielded during the process. He was largely there as a figurehead, and the political processes that led to the division of the Raj were already well in motion by the time he arrived in New Delhi. This is not to say that Mountbatten was entirely faultless in the tragedy that befell the region during the chaotic months of partition, but I think it would be a stretch to lay too much blame on a man who was, after all, dropped into an utterly fraught situation at the eleventh hour. Ultimately, Mountbatten was played by all sides in a situation that I'm not sure any one person could have fixed. He developed a good relationship, indeed a friendship, with Indian Congress Party leader Jawaharlal Nehru. Despite their very different backgrounds, both men favoured left-of-centre politics and thought that India could prosper as a single, united country. Mountbatten's wife, Edwina, had an even closer relationship with Nehru. While there has been much speculation that they had a romantic affair, evidence from their private correspondence indicates that the relationship between Edwina and Nehru went beyond a mere fling. They enjoyed a very deep friendship and an almost spiritual connection. Mountbatten seems to have been perfectly content with Edwina's close connection to Nehru. Their marriage was rather unconventional, and there was, of course, a political advantage to having a close, loving relationship between the leader of the Indian Congress Party and the wife of the Viceroy. 
However, Mountbatten had a very poor relationship with Muhammad Ali Jinnah, the leader of the Muslim League, who was adamant that the Muslim-majority areas on the western and eastern sides of the Raj should become a separate, bifurcated nation-state called Pakistan. The messy partition of India, a disruption that split the ethno-linguistic regions of Punjab and Bengal, impacted tens of millions of people, claiming the lives of hundreds of thousands. This tragedy would, for the remainder of his life, tarnish Mountbatten's reputation, though he remained a popular figure in India for many years, largely due to his closeness with Nehru. Returning to England, Mountbatten resumed his career in the Royal Navy. After a stint as commander of British forces in the Mediterranean, he was promoted to Admiral of the Fleet, Britain's highest-ranking naval officer, in 1956. He then served as Chief of the Defence Staff, the most senior official in the British Armed Forces, from 1959 until his retirement in 1964. Thereafter, he dabbled in diplomacy and charitable pursuits, but perhaps most importantly, he played the role of favourite uncle, confidant and guide to the young Prince Charles, heir to the British throne. Mountbatten even resumed his old matchmaking ways, trying to arrange a marriage between his granddaughter, Amanda, and Charles, though to no avail. Several well-placed individuals have come forward to claim that Mountbatten was involved in a plot to overthrow the democratically elected government of Labour Prime Minister Harold Wilson in the mid-1970s. A man named Peter Wright, a former senior scientific officer in Britain's domestic spying agency, MI5, claimed that in 1975 Mountbatten was brought into a plot by a newspaper tycoon named Cecil King, who was an alleged MI5 asset, to overthrow Wilson and establish a temporary government of national unity, i.e. a junta. The Wilson government was at this time beset by economic problems, with high inflation, ballooning national debt, and massive strikes. Hmm, sounds familiar. <laughs> Anywho, this claim by Peter Wright has been disputed by many others, or at least the role of Mountbatten in any plot has been minimised. With that said, I think there is enough evidence to say that there were some dark stirrings in a few corridors of power in Britain at this time. I can well imagine the Colonel Blimp types plotting over port and cigars in the smoking room of a stuffy gentleman's club. You know, the sort of crusty old guard types who might have considered Wilson an upstart pinko who had betrayed the glory of the British Empire. This was the fractious 1970s. An older generation vividly remembered the days when Britannia ruled the waves, but they were forced to watch, aghast, as their empire slipped away. Meanwhile, a new post-war generation had emerged, youth who seemed rebellious against anything, challenging and rejecting establishment politics, religion and social norms. And powerful trade unions were at this time demanding, and getting, large pay increases, the result of massive strikes that severely impacted the UK's faltering economy. In this febrile atmosphere, Mountbatten might have been at least aware of some talk of a coup d'etat, even if he was not actively involved in such a plot. 
frankly, by this stage in his life, Mountbatten, an old man of vaguely left-leaning sympathies, without much of a base of support either in politics or the military, seems like a very unlikely British version of Juan Perón. But could UK intelligence have been involved in some sort of scheme to oust the Prime Minister? University of Cambridge historian Christopher Andrew, a specialist in the operations of British intelligence, in his semi-official biography of MI5 titled The Defence of the Realm, confirmed that the agency was at that time spying on Prime Minister Harold Wilson and a number of his senior ministers and advisers, some of whom were suspected Soviet agents. My gut feeling on this is that the spooks might have toyed with the idea of a coup and even tested the waters to a certain extent, perhaps only to gauge how much support such a drastic step might gain. But I just don't buy that they would have risked making any such brazen move against Wilson and the entire parliamentary system of the country. Why would they? Wilson was a fairly centrist politician by the standards of the day, someone who had spent decades trying to limit the influence of the far left in the Labour Party, and who had ruthlessly defended British rule in Northern Ireland. Wilson was hardly a revolutionary threat, whatever the ruddy-cheeked blimps of St James's snobbish clubland might have splattered into their brandies. Besides, Wilson unexpectedly resigned as Prime Minister in 1976 without recourse to a coup, probably due to a diagnosis of early-onset Alzheimer's. But we digress. Let us turn away from the sordid world of political intrigue to, well, the even more sordid world of upper-class sex parties. Yes, it's that point in the episode where I should warn listeners of a more sensitive disposition that we're going to have to cover some rather unpleasant ground. Fair warning. We'll be considering Mountbatten's alleged involvement in an elite ring of paedophiles and pederists who preyed on vulnerable youth, often procured from Britain's government-run children's homes. Mountbatten was bisexual, and throughout his life he had relationships with many men and women. However, he had a clear proclivity for young men and boys, and since at least the time of his posting in Ceylon during the war, he had a particular attraction to darker-skinned youths and children. It is now a matter of public record that from the 1940s the US Federal Bureau of Investigation kept a file on Mountbatten. According to the FBI, he had, and I quote, a perversion for young boys. One of his British Armed Forces drivers in Ceylon claimed in the press, many years later, that it had been his job to deliver children aged between 8 and 12 years of age to Mountbatten's official residence, and that this was done on many occasions throughout his posting there during the war. One of Mountbatten's alleged victims during the 1970s, a boy called Amal, of South Asian heritage, claimed that Mountbatten told him he preferred dark-skinned people, especially Sri Lankans, as they were very friendly and good-looking. Sri Lanka is the modern name of Ceylon. 
Amal claimed he knew of other boys who were raped by Mountbatten during the 1970s, with the abuse taking place near his summer home in County Sligo, Ireland. There are allegations that Mountbatten was a fixture of a seedy house party circuit in post-war Britain and Ireland, where aristocrats and other wealthy individuals used their out-of-the-way country houses to host orgies, with young men and children brought in as entertainment. According to investigations by two Irish magazines, Now and The Village, a so-called Anglo-Irish vice ring existed from at least the 1960s through to the 1980s. Based on information from various sources, including MI5 whistleblower Peter Wright, it appears that this elite paedophile ring was surveilled by MI5 and other elements of the British security apparatus. Several victims have come forward alleging that they were trafficked from care or foster homes or just picked up off the streets to be taken to these elite sex parties where they were, to quote one victim, passed around. Victims were subjected to assault and rape while being plied with alcohol and drugs. Some victims claim to have been repeatedly abused over the course of months or even years. There are rumours of boys going missing never to be seen again. These powerful and influential paedophiles would have been likely victims of surveillance and blackmail, and, according to some, these child abusers were protected by the British state. Northern Ireland writer Robin Bryans stated that he had first-hand knowledge of the existence of this Anglo-Irish vice ring, Bryans was a bit of a colourful character, best known for his travel writing, and he was on good terms with many people from the political and social upper classes in both the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. He claimed to have been introduced to the so-called Anglo-Irish vice ring by his close friend Anthony Blunt. Blunt was a prominent art historian who served as keeper of the Royal Art Collection, he was also a covert MI5 asset and, for a while during the war at least, a Soviet spy. Blunt was a homosexual and he frequently travelled to Ireland to attend house parties in the country homes of aristocratic gay men. There guests could enjoy themselves discreetly at a time when homosexuality was illegal in Britain and Ireland but it soon became clear to Robin Bryans that many of the young men invited to these parties as, shall we say, entertainment, were rather too young and often very vulnerable. Bryans, who fell out with Blunt in the 1970s, claimed that he tried to use his connections to halt the sexual abuse of children at these parties. He claimed to have written to senior members of the Labour government of Harold Wilson and the Conservative government of Ted Heath, with whom he was acquainted. He said that he even tried to pull strings through the influential Masonic organisation, the Orange Order, where his brother was a senior office holder. The Orange Order had close ties to both the police force in Northern Ireland and to loyalist paramilitary groups. But Brian's efforts were, it seems, to no avail the elite paedophiles were too well protected. Bryans did not publicly expose these crimes and name names until the 1980s. In particular, he named Lord Mountbatten as part of the Anglo-Irish vice ring, 
as well as prominent Ulster Unionist Member of Parliament James Molyneux, who had close ties to both the Loyalist paramilitary groups and the Conservative government of Margaret Thatcher. And he named Sir Knox Cunningham, another Ulster MP who had been Parliamentary Private Secretary to Conservative Prime Minister Harold Macmillan in the 1960s. His claim against Cunningham, who also served as chairman of the YMCA in Northern Ireland, was later corroborated by an ex-British Army intelligence officer named Colin Wallace. Wallace, who served in Belfast in the early 1970s, later stated that Cunningham raped young boys and that this abuse was both facilitated by and covered up by the British state. In several statements, including a British television interview in 1988 and an Irish magazine article in 1990, Robin Bryans claimed that the boys being abused by the Anglo-Irish Viceroy were sourced from three government-run care homes, where sadistic paedophiles had deliberately been placed in charge in order to supply boys to the aristocratic house parties. In particular, Bryans named Kinkora Boys Home as being the epicentre of abuse in Northern Ireland. In effect, it was being run as a child brothel catering to the local elite and their guests. Kinkora Boys Home, which was located in a wealthy suburb of Belfast, became notorious for the sexual abuse of children over a period of around two decades up until its closure in 1980, when a storm of revelations in the Irish press as well as the British satirical magazine Private Eye, where Brian's wrote pseudonymously, finally forced the police to investigate what was going on. In 1981, three members of staff at the home were jailed for sexual abuse and physical assault against a total of 11 boys. Despite widespread rumours that the abuse by these employees at the home was just the tip of the iceberg, there was a concerted effort by British and local authorities to prevent any deeper investigation of what had gone on at Kinkora. Several former residents at the home have come forward over the years with their experiences of terrible abuse at the hands of staff and other men who were given access to the boys who lived there. While the abuse at Kinkora was well known by the time Bryans went public in the 80s, the sensational aspect of his revelations was the scale of government complicity in the crimes committed there. He claimed that boys from Kinkora were effectively pimped out to wealthy and politically influential clients under the watchful eye of the British state's security apparatus, all part of a scheme to gather intelligence and control assets during the Troubles. Though it caused something of a stir at the time, Brian's claims were basically ignored. The armed conflict between Loyalists and Republicans in Northern Ireland was still in full swing, and the last thing the British wanted was an investigation that could expose dangerous secrets. But Brian's claims were reinforced years later, long after a peace deal had been agreed in Northern Ireland, when, in 2015, a group of alleged victims took the British government to court, claiming that they had suffered inhuman and degrading treatment as a direct result of institutional failure to protect them, 
and as a result of British intelligence operations that utilised the home as a honey trap for paedophiles in Northern Ireland during the 1970s. These survivors presented evidence from two former British military officials who said that MI5 either knew about or was actively engaged in the abuse going on in the Belfast home. Ireland's Sunday World newspaper reported that MI5 had two agents operating at Kincora, who oversaw some of the abuse carried out there and then fed sensitive information to their British handlers. This legal action, and persistent claims in the Irish media, eventually forced the British government to agree to a public inquiry in 2017, albeit one with a very limited scope. That inquiry established that at least 39 boys had been abused at Kinkora throughout the 1960s and 70s. But the inquiry did not look into the claim that Kinkora had been used as a recruiting ground for the Anglo-Irish Vice-Ring, nor did it address the claim that Kinkora was run as a honey trap by British intelligence. Given this stonewalling by the British establishment, I think we have to make up our own minds about the likelihood of government collusion in the abuse that was going on there. So, let's take a look at the circumstantial evidence. Kinkora Boys Home was located in a prosperous neighbourhood in Belfast, close to government offices. It was a part of the city where military officers, judges, politicians and senior civil servants lived. As such, during the 1970s the neighbourhood was heavily guarded by armed police and British army patrols, and thoroughly surveilled by civilian and military intelligence officers. Rumours suggesting that British authorities knew exactly what was going on at Kinkora and were using the evidence of child abuse to blackmail and control a network of influential paedophiles, well, that might seem outlandish to us. But we must remember that many heinous crimes were committed during those years when the British state colluded with loyalist paramilitary death squads and infiltrated the inner core of the IRA. It's now a matter of public record that during the Troubles, British operatives and assets actively engaged in kidnap, smuggling, robbery, assault and murder in Northern Ireland. So is it really beyond the pale to consider that British intelligence might also have covered up child abuse in order to blackmail people? In the end, a few staff at the home and, to a certain extent, the local police force got the blame for the abuse that we know did occur at Kinkora. The low-hanging fruit, one might say. Since dissolved and rebranded as the Police Service of Northern Ireland, during the Troubles and at the time of the abuse at Kinkora, the local police force was called the Royal Ulster Constabulary. The RUC was infamous for its links to UK intelligence and loyalist paramilitary groups. The 2017 Kinkora inquiry found, and I quote, Major deficiencies in how the Royal Ulster Constabulary had responded to abuse complaints raised by residents at the time and said officers had failed in their duty to the victims. End quote. No doubt that is true, so far as it goes. 
While this finding fell short of what some suspected was really going on, officially sanctioned abuse of children at Kinkora in order to compromise and control wealthy or influential paedophiles, the result of the inquiry is nonetheless damning, exposing a truly appalling disregard by authorities in Northern Ireland for the lives and well-being of some of the most vulnerable young people in that society. One of the alleged victims, a man named Gary Hoy, who was placed in Kinkora with his brother in the 1970s, stated after the inquiry issued its finding, If we had had a proper inquiry in the 1980s, then I wouldn't have to relive this again today. MI5 and MI6 cannot be allowed to hide things, and I believe everything needs to be brought out into the open. I find it heart-wrenching that there were security men who could have been behind the abuse or involved in it. Mr Hoy's attorney stated that one of the three staff jailed in 1981 for abuse at the home, William McGrath, had been an MI5 agent who had used his position to blackmail members of a loyalist paramilitary group, thus allowing the British state to control the operations of this terroristic organisation throughout the Troubles. This relationship with MI5, Gary Hoy alleges, was what had facilitated his abuse as a child at the home and stymied all subsequent investigations into what went on at Kinkora. A 2019 biography of Mountbatten by Andrew Loney, who I interview for this episode, includes testimony from two alleged victims, one of whom was a Kinkora resident who claimed he was abused by Mountbatten in the summer of 1977. Aged just 16 at the time, he recalled being driven from Belfast, across the border, to the village of Mullamore. There, he was allegedly abused by Mountbatten in a hotel room in the village, very close to his summer home. The other alleged victim claimed that he had been abused in a boathouse in the village harbour, probably where Mountbatten kept his fishing boat. Another former Kinkora boy, Arthur Smith, has recently come forward to claim that he was abused as an 11-year-old on two occasions by Mountbatten in 1977. Smith also states that there had been a, quote, systematic cover-up of this abuse. Andrew Loney has stated that many files relating to Kinkora still remain closed, over four decades since the home was shut down. Why, he asks, should files scheduled for release several years ago still be kept under lock and key, especially when the information could help the survivors of historic sexual abuse, who are, quite rightly, seeking answers and justice for the appalling treatment they suffered while supposedly under the care of the government? No allegations of child abuse allegedly committed by Mountbatten have ever been proven in court. But given how much the British have stymied investigations into elite child abuse, that is hardly surprising. I think the evidence we have from alleged victims, acquaintances, and the FBI all paint a fairly clear and deeply unpleasant picture. Lord Mountbatten, an influential member of the royal family and a fixture within the broader British establishment, was an active, predatory and not even particularly discreet child abuser who was able to get away with his crimes over the course of decades. 
The idea that this abuse was unknown to British police and intelligence services strains credulity to its very limit. Mountbatten issued close police protection, for obvious reasons. But given his extremely sensitive role as a top military officer, not to mention his close proximity to the Queen and the rest of the royal family, I can only reasonably presume that MI5, MI6 and the Royal Protection Squad of the Metropolitan Police all kept tabs on him to some extent. It is next to impossible to believe that the British security apparatus, like their American counterparts in the FBI, was not fully aware of Uncle Dickie's proclivities. And if MI5 was complicit in a paedophile ring operating out of the Kinkora boys' home, then, of course, they would have known about the abuse of Kinkora boys by Mountbatten. Such sensitive information about Mountbatten's private life would likely have been known by key royal courtiers, as well as the Ministry of Defence and leading personnel in several UK governments. How could it have been otherwise? For decades, Mountbatten was an obvious security risk, and his official role would have required him to be surveilled and reported on and his sordid history of abuse might also shed some light on the alleged relationship that he had with Jimmy Savile. After his death in 2011, it came out that Savile had been a serial abuser of children and vulnerable young women. It is estimated that he may have sexually abused hundreds, if not thousands, of young people over the course of decades. Much of this abuse took place at the BBC during the 1960s, 70s and 80s when Savile worked as a radio and television presenter. Savile, using his status as a big-time fundraiser for children's charities, was also given unfettered access to children's hospitals and care homes where he would prey upon helpless girls. A subsequent inquiry into the culture of the BBC during the decades that Savile worked there was a bit of a whitewash in my opinion. Still, even this tame inquiry found that Savile had been protected by the corporation thanks to a no-questions-asked attitude by senior management, which put the demands of major TV stars far ahead of any concerns about the safety of young people. As well as being an abuser, there have been many accusations over the years that Savile was also a procurer of children for other wealthy and powerful men. There's that word again. Remember, Mountbatten was described by his buddy, Edward VIII, as his procurer. The alleged friendship of the working-class DJ Savile and the blue-blooded admiral, Lord Mountbatten, makes a bit more sense when we consider that they were both elite paedophiles preying on children at the same time, and with the very same modus operandi of using children's homes as a source of vulnerable kids for sexual exploitation. To have one voracious child molester stalking the inner sanctum of Buckingham Palace is more than unfortunate. But there were two of them on the scene, known to each other, operating with seeming impunity. One was the mentor of Prince Charles, and the other was Charles's friend and advisor. That's, um, that's quite a coincidence. Now, you might ask, 
What does that have to do with Mountbatten's assassination? Well, maybe nothing. But it is surely relevant to consider that Mountbatten was killed by a bomb in the village of Mullamore, the alleged scene of the abuse of children trafficked from just a few hours' drive away in Belfast. We have evidence linking Mountbatten to the abuse of children at the Kinkora Boys' Home, a place where other men potentially involved in the troubles in Northern Ireland were also abusing boys. The rampant abuse there was, at the very least, not seriously investigated by the RUC. At worst, we're talking about a situation where the cops and British intelligence were fully aware of and complicit in that abuse, an utterly ruthless compromat gathering operation. Could it be that Mountbatten was killed not only, perhaps not even primarily, because he was a member of the royal family? What if his involvement in child sexual abuse put an additional target on his back? Surely that dark aspect of his private life is worth keeping in mind as a possible factor in his death. As reported in the Dublin-based Village magazine, a senior police officer in the Garda, Ireland's National Police Force, claimed that Irish authorities had been discussing Mountbatten's sexual activities in the months leading up to the assassination in 1979. There must have been some deep concerns in Dublin about what Mountbatten was getting up to. Even if a blind eye might be turned to certain improprieties, Mountbatten seems to have been engaged in international human trafficking for sexual exploitation. If it ever got out that the Irish government knew about that and did nothing, well, that would be quite the explosive revelation. A member of the British royal family having boys trafficked across the border would not only be a serious diplomatic incident between Britain and Ireland, it would be a massive global scandal. While exposure of Mountbatten's depravity was a potential embarrassment to his Irish hosts, it could blow the lid off British state collusion in a child sexual exploitation operation, with an incalculable potential impact on Britain's campaign to retain control of Northern Ireland. Could the British have used the IRA to bump off Mountbatten? It might seem like an extraordinary idea, but bear with me. Joe Cahill, a founding member and chief of staff of the provisional IRA, might have been a paedophile who was entrapped by the British in the mid-1970s. Allegedly, British Army intelligence had photographic evidence of Cahill, then in his mid-50s, molesting a 14-year-old Belfast girl. These images were allegedly used to control him throughout his subsequent career as a senior leader of the IRA right up until his death in 1994. Speaking to Britain's Daily Mirror newspaper, a confidential intelligence source stated that The pictures clearly identified both Cahill and his victim. Her father would have killed him if he had found out. He was never prosecuted and instead the pictures were used to turn him. He was a prized asset. A man such as Cahill might be willing to do almost anything in order to keep that secret. Which all brings us to that fateful day in the summer of 1979 when Louis Mountbatten was assassinated by a volunteer for the provisional IRA. And, I should say again, 
It was not only the British royal who lost his life. Three other people were killed in the blast and a further three injured, yet more collateral damage in the ruthless conflict that racked Ireland. The assassin's name was Thomas McMahon, aged 30, a member of the IRA's South Armagh Brigade. One of seven children, he grew up on a small farm not far from the border between the north and south of Ireland. Stockily built and described as a tough and determined character, he had been active in the Republican movement since his youth. He was well known to police on both sides of the border and had been arrested by the RUC in 1978 for illegal possession of copies of the IRA Constitution and General Army Orders. Imprisoned for several months, he led a protest by Republican prisoners before his release. McMahon was allegedly trained in bomb-making and may have been one of the IRA's best explosive experts at this time. He allegedly had an accomplice in this operation, Francis McGurl, aged 24, who came from a family with long-standing links to the Republican cause. The day before the assassination was due to take place, the two IRA men allegedly crossed the border from Northern Ireland into the Republic. That evening, after darkness fell, McMahon hid a large radio-controlled bomb on the boat owned by Lord Mountbatten. The boat was unguarded. The possibility of having round-the-clock security for the boat during the weeks that Mountbatten spent at his holiday home had been considered by the British and Irish authorities, but Mountbatten wanted to avoid close personal protection, and, for whatever reason, neither the British nor the Irish insisted on it. So it was easy for McMahon to slip onto the boat and plant the bomb. He and, allegedly, McGurl then made their way south, deeper into the Republic of Ireland. Unfortunately for them, 80 miles south of Mullamore, they were stopped by Irish police at a seemingly routine roadblock. The cops quickly became suspicious. While McMahon remained cool, McGurl was obviously very nervous. The two men gave false names, but... Those fake names were actually on a register of wanted IRA suspects. So, McMahon and McGurl were taken into custody. Early the following morning, August 27th, Mountbatten left his home for the short drive to Mullamore Harbour. He was accompanied by members of his family, including his elder daughter Patricia and her husband Lord Braborn, their twin sons Nicholas and Timothy, and Lord Braborn's mother, Doreen. Also on the boat was Paul Maxwell, a local teenage boy who worked for Mountbatten during the summer. On a beautiful summer morning, without a cloud in the sky, they were all looking forward to a day of tuna fishing and collecting crab traps. When the boat was a few hundred feet from shore, the bomb was detonated by radio control, almost certainly activated by an unidentified woman seen standing on a path overlooking the water. The boat was immediately destroyed by the blast. Mountbatten was pulled from the water alive but seriously wounded. He died from his injuries within minutes of being brought ashore. Mountbatten's 14-year-old nephew Nicholas, the 15-year-old local lad Paul, and Doreen, aged 83, were killed by the blast, though the others sustained severe injuries. 
news of the bombing spread quickly. The IRA claimed responsibility for the assassination in a statement released shortly after the bomb was detonated. It blandly read, This operation is one of the discriminate ways we can bring to the attention of the English people the continuing occupation of our country. In the Garda station where McMahon and McGurl were being detained, officers must have looked at each other in amazement. Could it be they had inadvertently caught two Republican militants who had been involved in the assassination? The two men were interrogated about the incident and charged with the murders of Mountbatten and the others. The case against McMahon was pretty open and shut. A forensic examination of his clothing showed flecks of paint that matched the boat and there was gravel from the shoreline on his shoes. Tried in an Irish court, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. However, there was no forensic evidence found on McGurl, who was found not guilty and released. The alleged female accomplice who triggered the blast has never been identified. McMahon spent the next 19 years in prison before being released in 1998 under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement, the deal between the British and Irish governments, with the IRA and most loyalist groups, to end the armed conflict. McGurl lived as a free man until 1995, when he died in what at first appeared to be an accident. Supposedly he was run over by his own tractor after drinking heavily. However, a former British Army intelligence officer named Graham Quill told Mountbatten's biographer Andrew Loney for his 2019 book that this had been no accident. Quill said he had received information that the death of McGurl had been made to look like an accident, but that the elite British Special Forces Unit, the SAS, lay behind the hit, vengeance for the slaying of Lord Mountbatten 16 years earlier. Another life lost in a bloody and ruthless struggle. Another murky chapter in Britain's role in Northern Ireland. And another mysterious element of this case. Thirty-six years after the explosion, Lord Mountbatten's favourite nephew visited the village of Mullamore. Charles, then still Prince of Wales, went there in 2015, during an official tour of Northern Ireland and the Irish Republic. With the exception of a handful of acts of violence by dissident groups, the area has been peaceful since 1998, and though security for the royal visit was tight, the political atmosphere in Northern Ireland these days is very different from how it was at the height of the Troubles. John Maxwell, the father of 15-year-old Paul, the local boy who was working on Mountbatten's boat when the bomb went off, was there to welcome the prince. Recalling the day his son was killed, John, who had been in his garden not far from the harbour on the morning of the blast, said, There was a God Almighty explosion, and I thought it must be the boat. I rushed out, got into the car, and drove to where I thought the boat would have been. I stopped and looked over the cliff edge, but all I could see were bits of wood floating out from the remains of the boat. I thought, Nobody can survive that. The water was still churning up from where the thing had been blown up. It is etched in my memory. Of Prince Charles's visit, John Maxwell added, 
It says a lot about English-Irish relations that he knows he can come here. It is very positive. It's a big change from the 1970s and the 1960s. I like to think we live in a better world. Mullamore is a lovely place. I would like to see it getting its just desserts in terms of people arriving and staying. There is the scenery and the friendliness of the people. The people in Mullamore had nothing to do with this, I'm quite convinced. It was, as they say, an outside job. Asked what memories he treasures most about his son, John told a BBC reporter, Paul was interested in all kinds of sport. He played rugby. He had a very cheery disposition. He got on well with everyone. And he loved the sea. And being out on the sea with Lord Mountbatten was fantastic to him. He might have ended up working at sea, for all I know. If he had survived. Hi, Andrew. Um, great that you've joined me for this discussion on Lord Mountbatten, the subject of this week's episode. Uh, before we get started, I was just wondering if you could say a little bit about yourself, your work, and what led you to write about Mountbatten. Well, very nice to be on the programme. Um, I've written a number of biographies. I started off doing a biography of John Buchan, who was Governor-General of Canada and, of course, the author of The 39 Steps. Mm -hmm. And then I moved on from that to do uh, A Life of Guy Burgess, one of the Cambridge Spiring with Kim Philby. And it was then that I began to get very interested in the way that I suppose the cover-up is often worse than the original crime. And I found with, with Burgess there had been a lot of suppression by the authorities of records uh, and uh, censoring of the narrative. Uh, and I moved from then on to raw biography, uh, of which the Mountbatten's is the first for trilogy of books about royal marriages. Um, the next one, which I've just published, is called Traitor King, about Edward VIII and Wallace Simpson. And I have a book on Prince Andrew and, and, and the Duchess of York coming out next year. Oh. Um, and the Mountbatten's came out of, out of the, the Burgess book. I, I just thought that there hadn't really been a good book on Mountbatten. They were a fascinating couple. No one had done them together. Uh, and the previous books were sort of 40 years old uh, and rather um, official. Uh, and uh, I thought he was such a fascinating character who sort of like a Zalig figure appeared at almost every crucial moment of the 20th century. Mm. Uh, and that's really where it came from. And I found as I, I, I dug that the, there was a completely different story to be told. Uh, one was about his, his secret double life, which had never really come out. Uh, and the other was about the, the, some of the, um, the controversies of his career, the, the, the raid on Dieppe in 1942, and clearly the, the tragedy of, of partition with Indian independence. He was a great mentor to really three or four generations of the royal family. Um, going back, I mean, he was very, very friendly with with the future Duke of Windsor. He was his sort of ATC at one point. Uh, then when the Queen came to power as a very young, inexperienced woman, he, by this stage, had already been Viceroy of India, so he was a sort of father figure to her. Uh, and then he took on this role with Prince Charles. He'd never had sons himself. And uh, as Charles described it, uh, Mountbatten became his honorary grandfather. Uh, so he, he really was quite a powerful figure behind the throne. I mean, regarded with a certain amount of suspicion, 
ambition mm. because of his certainly dynastic ambitions. He was always trying to marry off members of his family. He was the one who brought the Queen and Prince Philip together. He was very keen later on that Charles should marry his granddaughter, Amanda. Um, so he was a man, um, you know, who had often had an agenda. Yeah. So even though he's sometimes described as a minor royal or a relation of the royal family, uh, and of course he had to have a career and uh, and make money, he he really was part and parcel of royal family life. Yes, I mean you know because of this very close link to Prince Philip, who he brought up, he was often very close to the Queen. She often stayed with him at his country house in Hampshire. Um, they would go to Sandringham uh, and uh, shoot every January. So, um, yeah, I mean, even though uh, in some ways I think he was a sort of second cousin um, to the Queen, he, he, he was very much part of the story. And I think the Crown brings that out. It's not mm. entirely accurate about him, but um, uh, it's, it shows how close he was to the centre of power. And as such, as someone with um, you know such close access to the royal family, he would have been observed, presumably, by the royal protection squad, by MI5, by the, the people who are charged with protecting the royal family. He would have fallen broadly within the remit of, of that um, supervision. Well, it's interesting. I mean, I don't think he did have much protection. I mean, even though he was a senior army officer, of course, as well, he's chief mm -hmm. of defence staff. Um, uh, the only time that he had protection was when he went to Ireland. The members of the royal family were not supposed to go to Ireland, though they did, quietly. Uh, but he had inherited, his wife had inherited a house on the west coast of Ireland in Sligo, uh, and they would go there every August. And it was known that they would go there. Uh, and... Um, that was when he had the security. Now, in 1974, the, the holiday was cut short because it was found, discovered that he was one, he, he was uh, high up on their target list. Um, and in 1978, reviewing security, Scotland Yard did begin to put more patrols uh, around his London home. Uh, in August that year, so a year before he was killed, there was an attempt to shoot him on his boat, but which was aborted only because the choppy seas prevented the sniper lining up his target. Uh, and in 78, they also discovered a loosened bung uh, in the, the small boat that he kept uh, in Sligo called Shadow 5. So I think the really extraordinary thing is that the security in 1979 when he went was not enhanced. It was actually reduced. Uh, and this, of course, was at a time when... Um, there had been the assassination of Airy Neve, there had been an attempt on the life of Alexander Haig, uh, and indeed intelligence had received a threat to him in that year, 1979, and he was told not to go to Ireland. A man called David Bicknell, who was the man responsible at Scotland Yard, said to him um, that he couldn't go. Mountbatten said, but the Irish are my friends, and Bicknell replied, not all of them, my lord. Mm. But he went, uh, and um, he went, of course, with, with those dreadful consequences. Uh, that's, that's interesting. Um, I'd read um, that a senior IRA man many, many years later after the ceasefire had said that there was talk about assassinating Mountbatten in the provisional IRA in the mid-1970s, but by the late 1970s they'd, they'd kind of decided against it. 
Um, but of course, it's rather difficult to sort truth from fiction and uh, and know what exactly is going on. But he seems like just on the surface of it, easy target for the IRA. So it is remarkable that there is, as you say, not only little security, but actually even less security, um, even though we're talking about a time when other people are being targeted for assassination by by the Republicans. Yes, no, it is interesting. I mean, as you say, I mean, even in the early 60s, um, the president of uh, Sinn Féin had, had vetoed an attack on him. Uh, and that was, of course, when he was still, you know, a senior army officer. By mm-hmm. 79, he'd been retired 15 years. So it is slightly odd. Um, but there are quite a lot of odd things about the, the, the murder. Um, uh, and one is, is, is reduced security, knowing the risk. Um, I mean, he was never very keen on having security because, uh, as I say, he had this double life. He, he was bisexual. Uh, he, after his wife had died in 1960, he increasingly had a series of, of gay affairs. Um, and, um, of course, uh, in the army, this was a criminal offence until the beginning of the century. Uh, you were thrown out for it. It was a, a, an offence to be gay in Britain until the 1960s. So this was something that would have damaged his career if it had come out. Um, but he was becoming a little bit more open about his bisexuality. Uh, and one of the things I discovered in the book was that he was also... Um, a pedophile. In fact, the FBI had had files on this going back to the 1940s. Uh, and I interviewed two of the boys he'd abused, in fact, at this holiday home in Ireland in 1977 when they were 16. Mm. And a fresh victim has just come forward. This case is going through the courts now in Belfast. And I think because uh, he, 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 he did quite a lot of his sort of pedophile activities, not in Britain, but in Ireland, uh, there was a suggestion, one, that he didn't want to have the garter around him. Uh, the other suggestion is that he wasn't killed because he was a symbol of the British state, but because people were concerned about his paedophile activities. Uh, and there's even some suggestion that it suited the purposes of all sorts of people for him to be killed. Uh, and that may explain why the security was reduced. Uh, I interviewed a chap called Graham Yule, who was um, a military policeman who was uh, basically targeted with with putting together a security audit for him in July 79. Uh, And he identified two vulnerabilities. One was the boat and the fact that a a bomb could be placed on it. It was often uh, moored in the harbour, very easy at night just to board it and put the bomb on board. And also um, some concerns about um, a sniper being able to get him in the house. Uh, And extraordinarily, that report was was passed the Garda, but nothing seems to have been done. Indeed, there's some suspicion that the Garda had been penetrated by the IRA. The Garda, of course, the Irish police, he's across the border. Uh, And that that material may well have found itself, that security report, to the IRA. So the very vulnerabilities were actually uh, passed on to them. the other extraordinary thing about Graham Yule was that almost immediately after this report was produced, he was posted for no reason to Hong Kong, uh, and he says forced to sign a gagging order, which only expired in 2017. So um, there are a lot of a lot of unanswered questions, and one of the problems is that the case is still regarded as an active case, even though uh, someone actually spent time in prison for it. 
um, was re uh, released under the Good Friday Agreement many years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, none of the papers have been released to the archives because it's an active investigation. And indeed, my request for the car logs for August 1977, <laughs> when these two boys were abused at Classyborn, um, uh, which the guard admit that they have, but are refusing to release because they claim it's connected with a murder that took place two years later. These car logs would be very important because they would show the uh, where the cars that came to Classyborn came from. And if they'd come from Belfast, as we suspect, they would probably came from a boys' home there called Kinkora, which is where one of the boys who was abused uh, uh, was was living. So, uh, you know, it, it is odd. Why why are these files closed? Why were people released these logs? Um, and why was Graham Yule required to sign a gagging order? Yeah, very, very interesting and suspicious. Uh, the British are very, very good at uh, cover-ups and kicking things into the long grass, and uh, especially that you know that has been especially on display in investigations of what went on in Northern Ireland with a lot of inquiries that have very partial remits, including an inquiry into the Kinkora Boys' Home, which uh, I think took place or uh, released its results in about 2017. And, uh, exactly. I mean, was, I mean, I mean, this, as you yeah. say, the problem is they have a very narrow remit. They often plant. I've seen the correspondence often plant, plant tame judges who know what they're required to do. Uh, the far, I've looked. I, I had a long campaign to get access to the Concora files, uh, and they were eventually released, but so so um, thinned out that they were completely useless. And of course, you know, for those who don't know, Concora was a boys' home. Uh, where the poor boys were being used as homosexual bait uh, and the uh, authorities knew about this because they were using it to to basically blackmail um, loyalist um, um, loyalist members there so it's 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 all very very murky territory um, yeah. uh, and I suspect most of this material has been destroyed any of those who spoke up against it uh, have been described they've been attempts to some people like Colin Wallace, who was a, an, an army officer involved in in ops in Ireland, um, and that's what they do. They just you know they, they target any any whistleblower and basically try and destroy their reputation. Yeah, I mean there's certain circumstances that, when spelled out, really are are hard for anyone to to refute. Uh, you know, Kinkora Boys Home. We know that it was uh, a centre for. Uh, the abuse of, of children and, uh, and young adults uh, for, for many years. And some people, you know, what, what one might call low-hanging fruit, were convicted in the 1980s of abuse there. But it was clear that this was a much larger uh, network of abuse that was centred on Kinkora. And we have to look at where the home was. Uh, Kinkora, I think, is located in a very prosperous suburb of East Belfast. Uh, an area that was heavily, heavily patrolled and surveilled during the Troubles. It was where the politicians and um, you know, lawyers and army officers and intelligence people had homes. The idea that a huge amount of abuse was going on in an area that was so heavily surveilled and that boys were being run out of there across an international border to a member of the royal family 
without anyone in the security services knowing about it, really stretches credulity to its very limits. It, it does, yeah, it does. Um, you know, and I think it'll be very interesting, this chap Arthur Smith, who's come forward, who's been in Australia, it'll be interesting to see when his case comes up in Belfast, what, what does emerge. I mean, but it's, you know, the problem is that these boys were, were young, they were teenagers when they were abused, uh, Smith was 12, so it's very difficult to, to really get any consistent testimony. Okay. Uh, but certainly this ring, I think Mountbatten appears to have been part of a sort of upper-class vice ring operating in the west of Ireland. There were several other country houses where boys were brought and abused. Um, but again, when I've tried to get access to, for example, diaries, all those things, you know, people refusing to show or say uh -huh. they've, they've been destroyed. Um, so, you know, it is, it is a very odd situation. I mean, as a result of this, of course, you know, one of my arguments for openness and transparency is if you don't have that, then you create a sort of vacuum for speculation. Mm. Uh, and that's sort of what's happened with the Mountbatten assassination. I mean, uh, you know, Powell, who's a well-known British politician, was suggesting the CIA had been involved. Uh, there were suggestions that because of Mountbatten's uh, opposition to nuclear weapons, uh, that there was uh, there may be, that may be involved with it. Uh, an Irish criminal called Patrick Holland uh, claimed that he'd been killed by the British security services because of a, a secret that he knew. Uh, and Holland was found dead in his cell suddenly one morning. Uh, there have been suggestions. I had Russian journalists come to me claiming that Mountbatten had been a Russian spy, compromised because of his paedophilia, called Admiral. Um, so, I mean, there are lots and lots of stories circulating, um, and it would be good to be able to, to, to get the truth by, by being able to see some of these papers. Mm, um, the man, this man I talked to also called Martin Dillon, who's a quite a respected uh, journalist in Ireland, and he says that the guard had never closed the Mountbatten file because they believed it was a wider conspiracy. Only two people were charged and only one convicted. And that they were hoping someone would rat up, uh, rat out the people up the chain of command who ordered it. Uh, the guard had been sitting for decades on a list of guys they would like to attach to the assassination, but no one's prepared to offer them up. And certainly I was given six names of people who were involved, several of them female, several of them well-known figures. But I think because of the Good Friday Agreement, uh, it's been seen as politically expedient that they, they sort of basically shut the door on this uh, and, and move on. Yeah, it seems that there must have been a chain of command, a chain of approval uh, going up to senior, one would think, the very highest levels of the provisional IRA command. Um, and also, there must have been at least another person involved. The two people who were collared for the assassination um, were uh, several miles away when it actually happened and the bomb was well, radio well, controlled. Happened. Yes, that's right. And and the, the, the bomb was radio controlled rather than timed. Yes. So there were people on, on a on a cliff, in fact including some women, uh, who activated the bomb when they saw them lifting the lobster pots. Uh, but Patrick McMahon, who was the bomber, who was the bomb maker, mm -hmm. who was the one who went to prison, I mean, he was only convicted on, on evidence of having green paint from the boat on his hands and some sand from the area on his feet. Uh, and uh, Francis McGurl, uh, who was also arrested with him in the car, they 
stupidly gave a false name, uh, and when the name was checked out, it, it proved to be another IRA person. Yeah. They got they'd made up the wrong name, <laughs> so that's why they were brought in. So it was all slightly sort of um, uh, Keystone Cops, uh, unless there was some sort of tip off. But McMahone has never spoken. Um, uh, he still he actually lives quite close to Mullet Moor, uh, where it took place. But again, there's suggestions that you know he basically took the rap, and others were were, uh, were were protected. Yeah, I've seen an allegation that the chief of staff of the provost in the mid 1970s was himself blackmailed by. British military intelligence for um, molesting a, a young girl. Uh, so going back to the possibility that Mountbatten's sexual predilections had something to do with his assassination, I do wonder if there is a possibility of a compromised IRA person being manipulated in some way by the British. Yes, I mean, that's certainly possible. I mean, Jerry Adams' brother, I think, was charged with with offences as a paedophile. Um, so, uh, uh, yes, I mean, there, there, there may have been, you know, closer connections than we realise. I mean, one of the ironies is that Mountbatten was in favour of United Ireland and indeed had offered to himself as a mediator uh, to try and bring that about. Uh, and that originally it was the loyalists who, who were out to get him, not the IRA. Oh. I mean, it's it's often thought that it was Martin McGuinness who issued the command, and that was why when the Queen met him several years later, it must have been a very difficult moment. But, you know, again, there's suggestions this was a rogue operation, that the IRA took responsibility because they felt they had to, but actually they, did, it was, it, they didn't really know about it. But I, I think the fact that on the same day there was this attack on British soldiers at Warren Point does suggest that it was a very calculated attack determined to, to sort of make news headlines. But again, you know, they, they, they kind of sort of spread the attention between two big events rather than yes. have two separate events, which might have got them a bit more attention. And of course, the other irony was that people were so repulsed by what had happened, elderly people being killed, young teenagers, that um, a lot of the, the aid from Northern from, from uh, America dried up, uh, and there was actually much closer cross-border cooperation on security matters after the assassination than there had been before. Yeah. It, of course, people do stupid things. People make strategic blunders. But it does seem pretty obvious that you would have significant negative blowback from killing a 79-year-old retired officer and his grandchildren. Um, and then to do it on the same day as a much more significant, from a military point of view, uh, IRA attack on a barracks, uh, why would you do both of these things in the same day? It just, it's, it seems like such a massive own goal that it beggars belief that any sane group that, would pull it off. Yeah, and, and I think that's why people you know, think that actually it wasn't a coordinated thing. It's just one of those things that had to be sort of uh, admitted to afterwards. But... Um, you know, uh, uh, what would be interesting is is to get some sort of testimony from the IRA um, about this. I mean, uh, just for the sake of history, uh, you know, what would be fascinating, I don't think it'll ever happen, but is to bring the two sides, the security authorities and the IRA together 
and the people who are involved and just see if they can if they can sort of tell the story um, by piecing the bits together from both sides. But I suspect we'll never get that. Mm. So Mountbatten is kind of back in the news a little bit um, in the last year, in part because of the Crown TV show, which features him, uh, and also because of Charles coming to the throne and people commenting, of course, that Charles uh, was the um, sort of... Uh, the Mountbatten was Charles's mentor and, uh, as you said earlier, sort of a like substitute uh, grandfather in a way. Um, so how much do you think Charles, um, as Prince of Wales and now as King, has been influenced by Mountbatten's outlook and Mountbatten's personality? Oh, I think heavily influenced. Um, even when Prince Philip was serving in Malta in the 1950s and late 40s, um, after Charles was born, um, often when the Queen and, uh, and Prince Philip went off on tours, they would be left with the Mountbatten's, both Princess Anne and Prince Charles. Uh, and in many ways, his parents, Charles's parents, were busy. They didn't really have a great deal of time for him. They weren't always on the completely on the same wavelength. And uh, Batten, who by 1965 grew tired, had more time. So, for example, when Charles graduated from Naval College, it was Batten who discovered that last minute no one was going to be there uh, and made sure that he was there. Huh. Uh, he allowed Charles to bring his girlfriends down to the country house he had in Hampshire to basically be away from from prying eyes and to develop those relationships. Uh, Charles had a permanent room at Broadlands that he could come to. There's very extensive correspondence between them, still closed, but but I'm, I'm aware of it. Uh, and, you know, he was a wise old bird about Batten. Uh, you know, he had, had seen a lot. Uh, and Charles, uh, you know, basically sat his feet and lapped it all up. And this was true not just of sort of political and public life, but also personal life. So Mountbatten had had a series of affairs throughout his marriage, not as many as his wife, I think counted 17 lovers that she had. But, but Mountbatten uh, had, uh, and very openly, a series of um, uh, female mistresses. Uh, and uh, the line was basically, you know, once you've got the air and the spare, you can do what you want. And you should certainly sort of sow your wild seeds um, before you marry. You should then marry a virgin. And that's sort of what happened with, with Charles. Mountbatten was killed just before Charles uh, got married to Lady Diana. But, and I think if, if Mountbatten had been there, it would be interesting to see how he would have counselled him. But I think there's a suggestion that, that Charles slightly lost direction uh, at this, this period when he was courting and marrying Diana. And that's sort of partly why he made that mistake, because they were totally unsuited. Um, so, you know, there are a lot of what-ifs if, if, if Mountbatten had survived. And he was a very fit 79-year-old when he died. He could easily have gone on like the Queen for another 20 years, or Prince Philip. Yeah, yeah, I think that's uh, that seems likely, and it is interesting how these uh, little twists of fate can can play out. But I, I think we can say that this was a very significant event for the royal family, and something that allows us to peer behind the curtain just a little bit, even if we can't know everything. It allows us to take a look at some of the murky things that were going on and uh, some of the unanswered questions that perhaps 
perhaps we deserve answers to to this day. Yes, I mean, I, you know, I think it's not just sort of curiosity. There are some important questions here um, about exactly what role did Mountbatten have? What were the reasons for his, his murder? Are they ostensibly what's been presented to us or were there other, other things going on? Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, justice hasn't really been served. I don't think everyone who was responsible, and the authorities I understand know who was responsible, has been brought to justice. Uh, and that can't be a good thing. No, I very much agree. So, Andrew, thank you so much for joining me for this episode. I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Okay, thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Assassinations Podcast, which was researched and written by me, Neil Cooper. Lindsay Morse produces and edits the show, Our theme music is by Graham Ronald. More information about this episode in the accompanying show notes. You can contact me and get more information about this and other episodes via the website assassinationspodcast.com or you can follow us on Twitter at assassinspod. As I said at the top of the episode, This was the last in our season on the theme of royalty. I've got a couple of other episodes in the pipeline for this year. Um, More details on those to follow. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.